0: A number of English translations of the Bible have subsection and section headings and a a number of that number have uh, section headings for what I'm about to read that's entitled something like authority of the kingdom of God. Now according to the dictionary authority just means it's a rightful power that's given to us. But reality is that just because we're given power doesn't mean that people respect it or understand it if you don't believe that all you've got to do is ask a classroom teacher or a youth worker simply because we've been given power we have to use it rightly When Jesus used his God-given power, it often sailed right over the heads of his friends and neighbors. When he fed thousands with a few loaves and fish, they missed the point completely. When Peter recognized that Jesus was the Messiah, the other disciples missed the point completely. When Peter, James, and John saw Jesus shining like the sun on a mountaintop, talking with Moses and Elijah they missed the point completely when Jesus heals a demon possessed boy even though his disciples could not the whole crowd missed the point the kingdom of God is not just about having been given power but the kingdom of God is about using that power that God-given power As graciously as it's been used with us, and with forgiveness, that power is the power to start fresh. Our scripture reading begins in a conversation among Jesus and his disciples. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I'll pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I'll pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt when the other servants saw what had happened they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened then the master called the servant in you wicked servant I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. The word of the Lord. Well, forgiveness is difficult, even for kids and it doesn't get any older as we do it's just plain hard work as kids we can literally see the need to forgive on somebody else's face we can see the tears roll down the cheeks we can see the the rosy glow spread from cheeks to ears when anger takes over and we know that something is not quite right and as kids even Deep down inside, somehow intuitively, we know that forgiveness can somehow put us back on the right track. Now, there are times that all of us have been asked to go through or made to go through the motions of forgiving, and the motions are often forced upon us. I wish I could count all the times that a parent or a grandparent or a teacher said, Russell, you need to forgive so-and-so. Or even better, so-and-so needs to forgive you. Well, the way that usually went if I had to forgive somebody else was kind of like this. Well, I forgive you, Um, uh, can I go outside now? I've done it. It's over. Nothing really changed. Somehow forced forgiveness doesn't feel right. It's somebody else's idea and not ours. We mumble our way through it and we pick up where we left off, usually exactly where we left off. And things are really not any different for us or for the other person. After all, it's somebody else's idea, not ours. Real forgiveness makes things different. Forgiveness is the heart of the good news. The past is still there. It's still real, but you and I are no longer tethered to it. Now, some of Jesus' contemporaries who were teachers of the law saw acts of forgiveness in legal terms. In their view, forgiveness was something that you did in order to be deemed righteous by those around you. And there were certain expectations of how many times you had to forgive in order to be deemed a righteous person. Generally, the expectation was three if somebody else wronged you or offended you three times, you were obligated to forgive them three times. If they wronged you or offended you a fourth time, you were not obligated to forgive. The underlying logic is almost like uh, relational economics. If someone wrongs you three times and you forgive them three times, then it's pretty clear that nothing is changing. So to keep on forgiving is simply wasted time and effort. Isn't that how it sometimes feels today when you and I try to put our faith into practice? Maybe that's why Peter voices a question that sometimes crosses my mind and may have crossed yours as well. Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Now Peter, who's never short on answers, even if they're wrong, ventures one and he says up to seven times. And Peter's actually pretty generous with that gift because the norm was three times, and he was saying something that was over twice that. But Jesus astounds Peter and says, not seven times, but 77 times. Or as some versions translate it, 70 times seven. A whole jar full of M&Ms. In other words, Jesus says, forgive so many times that you lose count. Now to illustrate his point, Jesus tells a story about two servants who handle their debts in two very different ways. Scholars have looked back and tried to find ways to put dollar figures on these two debts that were owed. And they they came up short mainly because we don't have any accurate records of what exchange rates and values for precious metals were that went back to the first century. But people have ventured some guesses, and the guesses, at least some that I've read, have varied on the larger debt anywhere from 12 million dollars in today's terms to a billion dollars. One Contemporary translation of the Bible um, tries to capture the sense of disparity between those two gifts by saying one man owed 50 million silver coins, the other owed 100. The point is, the difference was huge. And the man who owed the, the larger of the two debts owed so much that he literally found there was no way that he could come up with the money to pay it off he couldn't even come up with the money if he sold members of his family into slavery now I was looking for another way to put a measuring stick alongside this debt and in another part of the Bible it tells us that when King David made a gift for the building of the temple The gift that he made consisted of 10,000 talents of precious metal, the same as what this first servant owes his master. Some of us have probably experienced the desperation of realizing that there's not enough money on earth to buy us out of the mess we're in. And that's how it was with the first servant. Now by comparison, the second servant, the one who owes relatively little, that is pretty easy to quantify because we've got an idea of what wages were in that day. And he owed the equivalent of about three months manual labor. When the king cancels the debt of the first servant, he really gives him two gifts. The first gift, the obvious gift, is that he gives him money. The slate is wiped clean. No more debt. But the other gift, the less obvious gift, and maybe the more important gift, is the king gives him his freedom. Because there's something in this transaction that's very subtle, but the master chooses to refer to the gift as a loan rather than a theft. And when he refers to the gift as a loan, he's exercising his prerogative as a master to write off the loan. And so when he writes off the loan, all of a sudden the playing field is level again. The two are on equal footing. The relationship is reset and restored. You and I are to be generous with forgiveness. But at the same time, forgiveness is not something that is intended to be thrown around like Mardi Gras beads. You know, it's fun to do, but that's not a good thing for forgiveness. In a great book called The Art of Forgiving... The author names some important considerations for forgiving. He says one is that forgiveness is for people, not for institutions. It wouldn't make sense, and nothing would change if I were to forgive the city of Dallas for sending me a huge water bill. Everything would be the same. Forgiveness is for what people do, not for what people are. It changes nothing for me to forgive someone for being terribly disorganized. Forgiveness is for those who wound us or do us wrong, not for those who simply bug us. It changes nothing for me to forgive somebody for constantly telling me corny jokes. but neither is the goal of forgiveness getting back together turning back the clock or picking up where we left off sometimes that's just not possible maybe the person who hurt you or did you wrong is no longer around maybe they died, maybe they moved maybe they moved on maybe it's unsafe to be around them Forgiveness, though, allows us to leave the past in the past, at least emotionally. One counselor describes the past as a gigantic, unmoving rock, and that we often find ourselves tied to that rock by our nerves. And the harder we try to move forward and move away from that rock, the more thinly stretched our nerves become and the more painful life seems. Forgiveness allows our overstretched nerves to loosen their grip on that big rock which is the past. And Sometimes forgiveness just needs to wait. Things need to cool off. As one Christian writer puts it, when forgiveness puts you in a position of being one-up, in a superior place, the generous one, the giver of freedom, don't trust it. Don't give it. And don't accept it. That's not forgiveness. It's sweet, saintly revenge. If the thought of forgiving makes you feel righteous you're probably not ready to forgive. Forgiving has three benefits for us. They begin to show themselves right away. One is that we rediscover the humanity of others, even those who have wronged us. Think about one of the first things that we do when somebody has mistreated us or done us wrong we tend to use language that dehumanizes them. We say, well, that's all you can expect from him. He's a scumbag. Or, yeah, those people are just animals. They just act like that. Forgiveness allows us to see them as human beings, even if they've done us wrong. Forgiveness allows us to give up the desire to get even. Getting even wants revenge, and usually revenge plus just a little bit more for good measure. Forgiveness is different. We can forgive someone and still expect and work for justice, but we can let go of revenge. And finally, we can revise our feelings, even feelings about the past. We can remember being wrong without feeling the pain that we felt then. To see where you are on this one, imagine how you might feel if something good came to the person who wronged you. If you don't totally resent the idea You just might be ready to forgive. May God give us the grace to be His forgiven and His forgiving people.